Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to introduce David Locke Spicer. David studied aircraft design at Miles Aeronautical Technical School and Hawker Sidley, 1945 to 1949. He joined the RAF when Recruiting restarted, and after flying training was posted to a fighter squadron in Germany, which was reforming. In 1955, during a second tour in fighter command, he was offered a job as a test pilot with Hawker Aircraft Limited, and um, I think did quite a lot of testing on hunters. In 1968, he obtained a commercial pilot's license, and joined the Civil Aircraft Division of the British Aircraft Corporation. Four years later, he was encouraged to form Lockspicer Aircraft Limited, staying with BAC until 1976, when he left to concentrate on promoting the land development aircraft project. From 1977, he worked under contract with a branch of Lockheed Aircraft in Singapore, um, carrying out um, test flying programs on uh, comprehensive updates on their hunter aircraft involving weapons, reconnaissance and instrumentation. In 1987, the LDA, Land Development Aircraft Prototype, was uh, destroyed in an arson attack on the hangar where it was housed. David has more than 7,000 flying hours on 160 different aircraft types and is still very much interested in aviation. Um, it's a great pleasure. I invite him to talk to us now about the Boxer Utility Land Development Aircraft. David Longspicer. Well, thank you very much indeed. And it's... Uh very nice to be invited, very flattered to be invited to talk about my aircraft project. When uh, Kit introduced uh, me with those few words, he mentioned that uh, I helped form a, reform a, a fighter squadron in Germany, which was in the early 50s, and uh, which we did. Uh, it was a vampire squadron. We had seven aircraft. I just thought I'd mention this. It's nothing to do with the lecture, actually. But there were three of us, and we took it in turns to be CO, adjutant, and squadron pilot. <laughs> And that was quite an enjoyable time of life, actually. But uh, the boxer, the land... What I hope to do, to tell you, talk about, is to tell you the whole story right from the very beginning, the origins of it, um, and the role that it would fulfill. It started off as a crop-spraying aeroplane, with a secondary role as a utility aeroplane, uh, the people who gave the most valuable information on that were the New Zealanders, because I think they started crop spraying, actually. Um, and they, the chap called Gibson, who was deputy director of the uh, civil aviation uh, department in New Zealand at the time, he said, why doesn't someone build us an airplane which is like a, a tractor, you know, with all these simplistic uh, things. It wants to be functional. It needs to be uh, easy to maintain, uh, interchangeable parts, um, and uh, 
They wanted to be able to use it for crop spraying. They wanted to be able to clear the, clean it all, clean the pesticide and stuff from it. So for that reason, uh, he was in favor of a design which had tubular steel with fabric covering so you could take it off and hose it all down. <coughs> and, uh, so that very largely influenced, uh, my, uh, the thinking, obviously. Uh, and of course, very important was two very important things was when it was crop spraying, a waste of time was when the airplane's on the ground refueling with crop spraying pesticides or whatever it may be. Um, and the other thing is when it's a non-crop spraying season, the airplane wants to be versatile enough to be able to do a utility role. So that was the basis on which it all kind of started. And uh, I got interested in this uh, idea um, and. Uh, so I did a study of the comparative market at the time. And if I may have the first slide, please. <clears throat> this is a typical crop spraying airplane of that era. They don't hang around anymore. I mean, it's bad news, crop spraying nowadays. So uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know how many crop sprayers are engaged at the moment, but very, very few. This was a typical one. Uh, next slide, please. That's another one, the Grumman Cat. Um, <clears throat> As you can see, they're sort of okay for crop spraying. They can put spray booms on them, but not terribly good as an alternative um, utility rail. And the next slide, please. This is the air truck, which was designed in Australia. Actually, I went to visit them. The idea was that the, the loader would drive his truck up between the booms to load the hopper, which was behind the cockpit. And then the chap would take off, uh, taxi away, leaving the hopper behind. That's the typical sort of thing which, um, uh, which was, uh, currently going. I've got a list here of the comparative market. And there are, uh, 14 different aircraft flights. I mean, the, um, the Beach 36, the Cessna 180, the Piper Cherokee 6, the Beaver, the Helia, the Aramaki, Pilatus Porter, that was in the utility um, market. And in the agricultural role was the Cessna Agwagon, Agwag, sorry, Cessna Agwagon, Grumman Agcat, Trust Commander, Quail Commander, Piper Pawnee, and the Fletcher FU-24. And the total production they had in those days, um, 1963 to 70, was 12,500 aircraft. Average yearly production was 1,583. So there was a fair market actually to be attacked there. And um, whatever uh, a new airplane was going to do, it had to obviously do it better than, the, than that market, which I had just read out. Uh, <coughs> the average... Um, payload was um, about 1,800 pounds, or six people, and uh, uh, so that was the kind of size of airplane I was going for. I thought, when I studied this market, that actually uh, the, the whole configuration for the role that was to be, uh, for this role, crop spraying and utility, and when you're flying low, as the crop sprayers did, you want to have extremely good visibility. I mean, the pilot, to be safe, wants to have extremely good visibility. He wants to uh, have a very f low fatigue level cockpit. He wants to be a comfortable cockpit with good visibility and low noise and vibration level. So all of that really uh, 
some, you know, and, uh, and you want to be uh, very not good handling characteristics, particularly low speed because they flew very low and they turned very steeply, very close to the ground. So low speed handling and stalling characteristics were vital. So I thought, well, George Miles, when he introduced the Libelula designs in the 40s, I thought that was the configuration that would best suit this role. Can I have the next slide, please? This is the, sorry, I jumped around. That is the agricultural uh, 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 role that I was talking about. So the average is 1,800 pounds, with a wing loading of 15.3 pounds a square foot, a power loading of 12.3, reading off the bottom line, and a takeoff run of 680 feet. And the price then was, uh, the average price was 12,700. So the bottom line is something which I was endeavoring to beat. Uh, next slide, please. So this is George Miles' Libelula design, the first one, the M35. Um, and you will notice that it's got the tandem wing airplane, rather higher aspect ratio, four plane is, is right aerodynamically, and a low mounted uh, main plane. Actually, it wasn't very successful. But the next slide, please, was, and uh, this was the twin engine version, and it was a very elegant and uh, very good little airplane. Um, so I, and he designed that primarily because you get lift from both surfaces, front and rear. You could build a smaller airplane. And the idea in George Miles' uh, mind, as I understand it, was it could be used as a shipborne fighter without having to fold, have any wing fold because it would be capable of lifting whatever the design, you know, required payload was, uh, but with a smaller sized airplane. So that was that. So I thought, well, something along those lines is what uh, would be a good idea. So may I have the next slide, please? So this is about the first sort of scheme I did of, uh, of <coughs> what I call the land development aircraft. And to avoid any misunderstanding on nomenclature and so forth, I should say that the basic airplane, the production airplane, was going, I called the land development aircraft LDA-1, the airplane I built, built with friends, uh, that we built, was a seven-tenth size proof of concept, uh, which called the LDA-01. So no full-sized airplane has been built, only the proof of concept 70% size, uh, size airplane. And uh, so the idea of the four-wheeled undercarriage was that in order to cut down the landing, the time spent on the ground in a crop spraying role was that the aircraft would land <coughs> and then taxi around, excuse me, taxi around. The ground crew would have an inflatable trough into which they'd put the crop spraying stuff and the aircraft could then taxi over this trough. The, the, uh, pack, which you can see underneath, uh, the blob in the middle of the fuselage is the center of gravity, uh, and the pack you can see underneath it, um, is um, uh, is removable, but it could also be it could drop down, so that it could be hinged there, and then this foot would come down, and as the aircraft taxied over the trough, it would scoop up rather like a railway train used to take on water. It would scoop it all up, and the aircraft wouldn't actually have to stop to re-equip uh, itself, refuel with uh, with crop spraying stuff. And when the season came to be a non-crop spring uh, agricultural type season, then the pack could be used to change uh, roles. You know, you could put things in it, cargo, whatever. That was the initial kind of thinking. May I have the next slide, please? 
Right, so having thought about that, um, I, I built uh, this model. It's a, a rubber-powered, eight-square ball cell. I expect more than I expect. Several people here might have built models in those. You simply draw out the side view of the fuselage, uh, and then with pins either side of eight-square ball cell, so glue it all together, make two sides, and then draw. Obviously, you've got all a plan view, and then stick it together, and there you have it. And that was, uh, you know, the standard way of building model airplanes in those days. This model, you could put the both wings onto the same part of the fuselage. Four planes in the main plane could both go on the top. They could both go on the bottom, or you could put the four plane uh, on the top and the main wing at the bottom, as George Miles had on his M35, or you could uh, do it the other way around and have, as this model is in this configuration, with the main plane at the back and the four plane at the front. Almost needless to say, uh, the lift-drag ratio was quite clearly in favor of just having the wings as far apart from each other as possible. So it went better with, uh, with the wings uh, separated by the depth of the fuselage. Um, I've still got that car, by the way. But I don't have hair anymore. <laughs> this is the, the GA of the airplane, seven-tenth size, proof of concept, proof of concept LDA-1, which we decided to build. Uh, we started, um, it took four years, we started in, uh, in August um, 1967, <coughs> and we did actually have an engine. <coughs> it was an 85 horsepower Continental engine, <coughs> and it was, uh, as uh, Kip mentioned, I used to be with Hawkers, and the Le I, I visited the Lebanon on several Middle East Air Forces who had our airplanes, and one day while I was waiting for something to be serviceable, I, I found a little Italian airplane, and they said it was unserviceable, and I was looking for an engine, and they said, oh, Mr. David, you can have it, you know, so I said, thanks very much. So I, they, and they arranged the shipping. And somebody said one of the most remarkable things about this whole project is that the Lebanese actually gave me something and paid for it to be shipped back to England. <laughs> but uh, so you can't see it. This is we built the aeroplane in an innocent hut, and you can probably see that. Out of sight is the bench where the engine was, and a very friendly Rolls-Royce man overhauled it and put in thrust bearings so it would be uh, usable in the pushing as opposed to the tractor sense. This is my friend George Smith, and we built the airplane together pretty well. And uh, the first thing we did was to build the fuselage, and uh, this is a fuselage jig. So half-inch ply lofted out the, uh, the side of the fuselage uh, on this, and exactly as we built the model airplane, of which you saw a picture earlier, um, we, instead of... Uh, pins and eight square balsa. It was these brackets and this square ski, uh, square sectioned steel tube. It's T45, 22 gauge um, uh, tube. We, I lofted the sort of thing. We, we stuck the things and then we cut holes around here. So we got an AID approved welder to come and weld it all up and then two halves stuck together and built it exactly as you build a model airplane. May I have the next slide, please? This is the chap who, who did the welding. Um, he worked at Kingston. And uh, this is the nose of the aeroplane. This is the cockpit, and that's George. And that's an apprentice, I think, who came down to help. Next slide, please. 
This is the wing, uh, A-wing section. Of course, as mentioned earlier, the, the airplane has uh, all wing sections were the same. I mean, it became apparent during the design it would be possible to do this, so that the port and starboard main plane and the foreplane are identical. So we made four wing panels um, and uh, one for, for you know, test, uh, ben, you know, doing a structural test on the rest for, to be uh, used on the aircraft. Uh, that was one of them. Um, the, uh, the idea was that uh, as the de design evolved, the aircraft could uh, have many interchangeable parts, all the wing panels are interchangeable, and all the control surfaces. So you'd have three separate identical wing panels and six separate but identical control surfaces. And obviously there's, a, there's an advantage in the tooling and cost of uh, cost of tooling and learning curve of production, as well as spares holding and so forth for the operator. Um, next, next slide, please. Now this is the rear of a, a photograph taken at the rear end of the fuselage. That is the lower lift strut attachment. Because it didn't have any money, this airplane was built with an enormous amount of assistance from a lot of pals and so forth. But financially, it all came out of my taxed income. So there wasn't, you know, I couldn't say, well, we'll go and get a, the wing attachment turned up out of mm, titanium or something. Uh, the, so the only machined parts, in fact, in the whole airplane, were um, wheel axles and uh, the wing attachment uh, lugs, of which that is one. Um, and that's about all. Most things we you know designed to make it out of bending a bit of 18 gauge light alloy and welding it up, that sort of approach. So being impecunious, in a way, added to the philosophy, uh, assisting the philosophy of the design, which is simplicity, simplicity and economy. Because one of the objects of this airplane was that if it got into, you know, when it was fully developed and a going concern, was that it should be manufactured uh, uh, by countries overseas um, under license uh, who would benefit from expanding their own aircraft industry and actually have a have a, um, a market to use it uh, in their own countries so that you're looking at Africa and South America and uh, anywhere which wanted to do, wanted to make airplanes and, and then wanted to use them um, I'd like you to pay re just remember this particular because I can mention this later uh, the, the, the main undercarriage uh, is a light alloy tube across there. There's a steel elbow joint there. It's welded around there. And this is a light alloy leg down to the where the wheel goes on and the same on the other side. It was pivoted there and then there were these were uh, arms which came back and there was rubber, bungee, like a sort of SE5 kind of approach uh, to the undercarriage system uh, which uh, was wrapped around there. Um, I will mention this later, but uh, that is, you can get an idea of the fuselage structure from that, I think. Next, please. This is the front undercarriage, which is built the same way, with steel elbows, light alloy tubes. This is the frame for the instrument panel, and this is the seat, which was welded up and uh, was adjustable fore and aft. Uh, next slide, please. We came to putting the wing on as the assembly, and uh, this is all done at Lansfeld outside the Nissen hut. There's the door of the Nissen hut. 
uh, four-wheeled undercarriage. It started off with four wheels, all the same size, and the, I don't know whether it's on there, but I managed to get an ex-Hurricane four-channel radio for a fiver. And, uh, that best deal I think I ever got out of Hawkers. Really. <laughs> but, uh, uh, anyhow, that's, uh, just as a matter of possible interest, I could say that <clears throat> I've got a quick list here of the history of building. We started in June, June the 1st, 1967. Um, August the 3rd was the fuselage jig we've seen. September the 9th was the starboard side of the fuselage. October the 7th of 1967, fuselage basically was finished. In 98, um, the engine mounting was made. The... Um, uh, the seat was welded up. We saw that on the previous thing. September the 7th, 68, the engine was fitted and um, the uh, fins and rudders were started in October and finished in December. Um, the con 1969, January, the control services were started. Um, in August, uh, we decided... Uh, there were other things which we thought we'd like to introduce, but we decided not to introduce any more changes. We'd finish it as drawn as soon as possible. And in September, we did the control group. Now, uh, next slide, please. And this is the control group. Now, this airplane differs from the sort of canards that you often see or hear and read about, in as much that most people think when you're looking at things like that, well, either the airplane's going backwards, or at least the tailplane's in the front, so obviously the elevator must be there, and the ailerons are probably at the back. But it's not so on this airplane, because I wanted to get super safe stalling characteristics. And uh, after all, these are going to be flown very close to the ground, and you might be trying to get into a very small field and pull the stick back, and you don't want to have any trouble if you start you know, getting into the burble and the airplane's about to stall. So decided that the best, and particularly as the center of gravity of the airplane, is, uh, is about here. So we're getting roughly a third of the lift there and two thirds there, but the center of gravity is there, which is not very far away from the uh, trailing edge of the wing. It is much further away from the uh, foreplane, of course. So uh, I thought, I won't have enough elevator power on just the two inboard controls. So I made the whole of the trailing edge elevator and the outboard section aileron and the inboard section flat. So, and on the foreplane, it was pitch trim. So if you sat in the cockpit, from the pilot's point of view, everything was normal. You had a stick which worked the elevator as you pulled it, pushed it forward on, right? It moved the ailerons if you moved it laterally and you had a trim wheel which moved the foreplane flat. So, the pilot operation point of view, it was the same as an ordinary airplane. But this gadget here <coughs> um, was um, designed so that, I don't know if you can see it properly from this, but if you can imagine the stick being moved fore and aft, this is, this is the stick, basically it has a, obviously something else stuck into it. Um, if you move it all fore, all these three rods uh, move together fore and aft. If you rotate, if you move the stick laterally, then uh, this will, depending which way you push it, uh, one rod will be pushed back and the other one will be pushed forward. So that moved the ailerons. So that was port aileron, starboard aileron, and center flat. And all three are elevator. And that's the way that it worked. And it worked quite well. If you move the stick diagonally, of course you've got a proportion of the, of the combined movement. 
I mean, the drawback was that I couldn't really, at this stage of the game, feed in uh, aileron differential. So I accepted the fact that the aeroplane would suffer from having some adverse yaw characteristics. But that's something I felt I could put up with. You know, uh, this is a, a research aeroplane, and uh, it wasn't. Uh, it would be a refinement which would be necessary, but uh, I wouldn't you know, wait until I got more time to develop that into it. That's the instrument panel which uh, is basically f from that line to the right engine and from that line to the left flight, flight uh, flying, flying uh, instruments. Uh, next slide, please. This is the aeroplane, more or less finished, but obviously uncovered. That's the pack there. The fuel tank, 15 gallons, is there. We later put another one in there. Um, and this is the canopy and four field undercarriage, uh, and that's the old Lebanese engine at the back. Uh, next slide, please. This is putting the fabric covering on. As I mentioned earlier, what the uh, requirement that the New Zealanders were keen on was that you could be able to take the fabric off and just inspect everything and hose it all down to clean it all down for, for um, pesticide stuff and so forth. And I think you can see the 85 horsepower Continental engine there, very well, and a fixed pitch propeller there. Uh, all these ribs are all the same, of course. Um, next slide, please. I put a sort of luggage rack on it so you could carry the wings around, and that was the first photograph um, showing that. And the next slide, please. And this was, when it was finished, uh, all the component parts. So you could see that uh, it was a bit like a kit, really. Um, next slide, please. This shows the cockpit, uh, you know, as, as, you, as you sort of approach it to get into it. And the next slide, please. This shows it uh, with most of the, that's the radio. That's the stick leading to the control, the mixing box down there. That's the rudder bar across there. And these are the engine instruments. And these are flight instruments. Next slide, please. This view show, I mean, view was the most important thing, as I think I've stressed. Uh, <coughs> and this gives you a rough idea how good the view is uh, out of the cockpit. Um, and it really was very good. And I mean, you really could fly the aeroplane within inches, not just feet of the ground. It was very, very easy. And it, uh, it was uh, a, a very great, well, it makes all the difference between, uh, you know, having a great engine with a propeller going round in front of you and, and obstructing your view. Uh, next slide, please. Now, this is the control system, which I have briefly mentioned. Uh, the, it was all rod to bell cranks, cable to pulleys out to the wing to uh, another bell crank and rods to the control surface. So it went rod, cable, uh, rod, via pulleys and bell cranks. So the, uh, the rudder movement was 30 degrees either side. The flap movement was uh, up 16 and down 33. Aileron up 28, down 20. And the four-plane flap, which is trim, um, is uh, up 10 and down 42. The normal CG datum of the airplane was 
as the show, the data was the leading edge of the floor plan. It was uh, 114 inches aft, and that was the middle of the pack, and that was the normal CG. But the advantage of the of the uh, <coughs> of this lift distribution, of course, is that you've got lift here and lift there. So the CG movement was something like. Uh, well, it was four times greater than a conventional airplane, and it was um, very, very great. It, it really didn't come into the... It wasn't a problem. Um, may I have the next slide, please? This photograph was taken on an engine run, uh, engine run test uh, before the aircraft flew, and I'm actually holding the stick back. So you can see here that the whole of the trailing edge of the wing is being elevated, is up. Um, that's, that just sort of uh, shows that it is. Now, these fences and things were introduced as a result of wind tunnel work. And I must say that the British Aircraft Corporation were incredibly helpful and sympathetic and understanding and very encouraging. Um, they really were. And, uh, because they did some wind tunnel tests for me, which was, amongst other things, which uh, I think it may come to them. May I have the next slide, please? No, I'll come to the wind tunnel testing later. It's a bit difficult because things didn't all follow in one natural sequence, and one would have to dart around, which would just be confusing if I did that. So I'll talk about the wind tunnel a bit briefly in a little while. This is the first flight which took place at Wisley, on the first, uh, when is it? It was uh, the twenty-fourth um, of, uh, of August, nineteen seventy-one. As the first flight, it had been preceded by a number of little hops. One advantage of having a small airplane is that you can do that. You can take off, get it a feet above the ground, and then plonk it back on again and, and feel feel away. And what became very apparent was that it was very low on directional stability at that speed, you know, around takeoff speed. So I thought it would be, it would improve matters to put this central fin on. So that was a mod before embarking on a proper first flight. Um, it's one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time. It didn't actually work out all that well, but anyhow. May I have the next uh, slide, please? This is a photograph taken by the chase airplane on one of the early flights, and you can see that this fin which has been stuck up there as a additional thing um, <coughs> uh, to uh, try and improve the directional stability. It didn't because it contributed to the dihedral effect, and it, pr it presented very little advantage on uh, directional stability, so I took it off, and uh, we did some other things later. May I have the next slide, please? This was a flight I just... One day, I got all the people who had been, so many people who'd been very kind and done all sorts of things and helping. And so, this was a flying day at Wisley to sort of people who'd helped me with uh, all kinds of aspects. Or as, um, generally speaking, on the design side, I know enough about it to know, to know that I don't know enough about it. So, I'd design something and then I'd ask, and I'd the same with aerodynamics, and I'd say, what do you think of this? And they'd either say, yeah, that'll be all right, or no, it won't and uh, suggest something else. So that was the way it, it, it sort of evolved, became into being. Next slide, please. There are quite a few flying shots here that show very clearly the plankiness of the wings. And 
I mean, all aircraft design is a compromise, and pretty obviously the biggest compromise in this design is to sacrifice aerodynamic and visual elegance for practical, practical, uh, practicality and simplicity. Um, and I wasn't trying to make it look at all pretty at this stage of the game. I just wanted to uh, check that the aerodynamic and handling characteristics were as I'd hoped they would be. Next slide, please. This is another shot at Wisley. You can see from here, the pilot, uh, you can see, as obviously from the ground, how clearly you can see him. So he can see you as clearly. It gives an indication of the, of the view from the cockpit, uh, how good it was. Next slide, please. And that's just another shot also taken at Wisley. Next, please. Right, now the wind tunnel. Uh, BAC's uh, uh, five-foot tunnel at uh, Weybridge. They conducted some tests on the aircraft as it is, and uh, they very helpfully came up with the uh, with the uh, uh, recommendation with advice that at the stalling incidents, which is you know <coughs> it was uh, up 15 degrees as it normally is, there was a vortex which comes from the tip of the, uh, of the foreplane and, and hits the main plane. So when you're up like that, uh, this vortex will hit the main plane and destroy the airflow. Um, so found out in the wind tunnel was that that happened, and so the fin and rudder was already there, so that acted as a fence over the wind. So this additional fence was added, and that contained... There's no airflow going through this thing at the moment. That's why all the tufts are hanging down. Um, so the air, when, when, when it was uh, stalling up to sort of 15 degrees, uh, the vortex came and, and hit the main plane about there. Um, there's, an, there's another picture that will show that. At the same time, tests were done on the larger airplane, um, the LDA-1 as opposed to the O-1, and it was uh, as a result of this. And so the wing tip, that, so uh, the uh, results of that was that the wing, uh, the fins and rudders, instead of being in the uh, middle of the wing, should be at the wingtip, and that would mean two more fences in the wing, since the the fin on the LDA one O one is not there now. And this is a different wing section, incidentally. It was NSEA two three O one two on the on the um, on the LDA one and the. Proposed one for the LDA one is uh, NACA uh, two four one two, I think. Um, so it's slight, it's a change of wing section, and the major thing was putting the fins on the wingtips, and that did quite a lot. Of advantage. But next, next slide, please. This shows what happens um, on the left. We've got the angle of incidence is at fifteen degrees or fourteen point nine. And there's no yaw on the aeroplane, and you can see that uh, everything's flying. Okay, there's a bit of bit of breakaway there, but the, the the vortex which comes from the from the tip of the foreplane strikes the main plane here, and you can see the disturbed flow on the main plane, which is contained by that is the fin, and that there's the fence. Are very difficult to see on air, but. Um, believe me, that's the fence and that's the fin. And you can see that the flow on the main plane is unstalled. Remember that the, uh, 
object of the exercise was to make the four-plane stool first, which it naturally didn't want to do because it's a very low aspect ratio surface. So it had to be persuaded to stall first um, in order that the stalling characteristics would be uh, the ones that were desired. When you have your, in addition to the incidence, if you then have 10 degrees of your on the aeroplane, then... Um, then the vortex, instead of coming straight back to there, of course, came over to here. So the flow did break away uh, a bit around here. But it's a pretty acute position to be in. You know, you're up at 15 degrees, and then having done that, you're then going like that as well. I mean, you're all set up for a spin, really. Um, and uh, so it still was behaving quite well. Next slide, please. This shows the effect <coughs> on... On, on the stall characteristics of when it was first tested without, with, with uh, zero incidence on the four plane, uh, this was, this was the slope curve, this is a pitching moment curve, very violent pitch up. So it was developed in the wind tunnel to put two and a half degrees of incidence on the four plane, all part of making it stall first, as opposed to this. So, uh, that's something we could play about with later in the hour. Um, and, uh, so that was, uh, that meant that the stall was made uh, a bit smoother and the pitch up was, uh, was much more mild. And, uh, so that's how it was, this is how it was developed for flight, the, the LDA-01. This is the, uh, second wind tunnel model, which is the wind tunnel model of the full-sized aeroplane, which has got the NACA 2412 section and it had three degrees, uh, uh, four plane incident, incidents in relation to the main plane incident. Um, and that has, as you can see, a much smoother pitch up, uh, pitching uh, curve and uh, lift curve. So that, those wind tunnel tests were really extremely valuable. Next, please. Right. Now, the CG. The whole, one of the whole things that I've been saying is, is, is to get a very wide CG range. And this certainly did. That's 75 pounds of lead right in the nose of the aeroplane. Um, that was to test the forward CG case. By this time, we could also, I put another, I think I mentioned earlier, put another 15 gallon fuel tank in front of the cargo bay area, as well as the one which was built in originally in the rear. So we got 15 gallons of fuel in two fuel tanks separated by the length of the cargo bay, also to play with CG range. Um, and actually, uh, that's quite a lot of weight in the nose. It was uh, not something you could ever you know, practically possibly achieved. We have the next slide, please. Uh, for stalling trials, I fitted tail parachute, which was, uh, uh, that's actually a NAT tail parachute, and it was uh, modified with a Vickers slip here and a control in the cockpit. I never had to use it in flight, but I did do ground tests, both streaming and jettison, and that worked okay. So it was a safety device, which obviously anybody would have on a, an airplane that they were experimenting with to carry out uh, uh, that sort of uh, exercise of stalling. Next slide, please. The, the, we made four wings, panels, as I mentioned earlier, and the fourth panel was uh, stru loaded structurally. And it went to 120% 
before something inside broke, but it didn't, the whole thing didn't break. That's Roger Dabbs, who oversaw the structuring, the structure, so he was head of structures at Kingston. And, uh, whenever I designed anything, I'd send it off to Roger, and he'd either sort of signal it up or lighten it or do something. And uh, so he was very helpful. And, uh, this was a chap at Hearn who, uh, was helping with, uh, with make some of the mo making some of the modifications. So that's just a picture of our wing structure test. Uh, next, please. <coughs> that wing, which you've just seen, panel just seen, was used for th things like this. The idea of the aeroplane was that it could carry all its own spare parts. Um, everything would go inside except the wings, but you could carry a spare wing panel underneath on a sort of luggage rack arrangement so that uh, a fleet operator would be able to, if you've got an aeroplane stuck 150 miles up the road, he wouldn't have to get a bigger aeroplane or ground transport or whatever. He could fly in his one of his other aeroplanes anything he needed to uh, rectify whatever the problem was. Um, next slide, please. Now, this is a picture. Uh, you might think it's a bit strange because you can see that it's painted in camouflage colors on this side with army written on it, and it's on painted white uh, civilian colors on that side. So the thing is, the first international air show I took it to was Le Bourget in 1975. I wanted to show that the aircraft could be either um, a land development airplane or a light defense aircraft. So that, uh, although it was meant to be for the benefit of mankind and helping people do things, I recognize that a military application is something which uh, one couldn't really ignore and might even, you know, be the best way of getting funding, perhaps. But, uh, uh, so that's why it's painted like that. And the next slide, please. And that's another picture taken before going to Paris. Uh, this is camouflage side. That's the oil cooler, the air intake. You've got a pitot head tube here, I think, there, which has got all the sort of, you know, uh, and things on it. And that's a, 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 a pitot head, which, if you're not doing any sort of testing, you just remove that and just rely on that one. Uh, by this time, I put uh, some fiberglass wingtips on it. Um, and uh, you can very clearly see here the fin and rudder and the wing fence. Uh, next slide, please. This is at Le Bourget. Uh, we're on the static park, because the, the plan was that every day, and I guess you know, everybody knows you've been all these things, that, you know, the aircraft's on static display during the day, and then at the time of the display, the aircraft taken out to the area to perform. And this is where we were parked, very conveniently next to the bar. And uh, that's George Smith, who helped me build the aeroplane. That's my nephew, Andrew, Andrew Sanders, who he and George came out in the car, and I flew the aeroplane um, over to Le Bourget. Um, and that is us in the static part, though. Next slide, please. Now, I flew every day, and everything was fine. And then at the end of the week on Friday, um, the plan was that about three-quarters of an hour before we were due to fly, and the timing was very precise, of course, um, and I'd asked to fly after the Viggins because I thought they'd got their 
aerodynamic, uh, aerodynamics right on the Viggen, and uh, so I wanted to follow another aeroplane which had a small wing at the front. I mean, that was a joke, really. But, uh, so I, I did, in fact, uh, after the Viggen's landed, I was due to take off. And every day I'd walk out, 20 minutes beforehand, call up on the radio and see if everything was going all right. And, uh, obviously, normally it was. And, uh, so I taxied out and, uh, to take off point and then, you know, carried on performing as, uh, normal. This particular day, on the Friday at the end of the week, I couldn't get near, as I walked towards the aeroplane, I saw a great swarm coming over. And, um, um, this is a, this is an anecdote which is, you know, I, I find very queer. Um, and I saw this great swarm coming towards the aeroplane, and I thought, you know, mosquitoes or something, and then it was bees, and they sat on top of the canopy. That is a rear-view mirror, by the way. Uh, so the bees are c sitting here and covering it, covering the whole thing. And I couldn't get near the cockpit, obviously. And this is, these are French pompiers who came out with to, to get rid of the bees for me. And uh, a voice from the crowd said very clearly, David, it will never fly again. And I thought, that's a very strange thing to say. Uh, so I made some crack about being a very versatile aeroplane with its own beehive. But, I mean, if you saw somebody's car outside with a whole lot of bees on it, you wouldn't say it'll never drive again, would you? But that's what he said, and both Andrew and George, we all heard him say that. And anyhow, that was that. May I have the next slide, please? Um, this is the TU-104 with Concordsky. The chaps are still trying to get my, get the bees out of the thing, see? And uh, it took them some time. Obviously, I missed my flying so shot slot. So, the very nice chap who ran the whole show, Pierre, I can't remember his name, Pierre, you ran the test pilot show school at Cazaire, the French thing. And I said, Pierre, uh, I want to fly at the end of the program because I haven't been able to get into my slot because I've been stopped by bees, and they're French bees. And he said, oh, David, is a pop or sheep, and all the civil traffic, I don't know. So I said, it's okay, I'm only, only joking. Anyhow, I wasn't allowed to fly because civil traffic started again. And, uh, that was it. Um, that evening, they said they wanted all the aircraft to go over to the other side of the airfield because, uh, some difference in their arrangements, and the big aeroplanes were towed, and the little aeroplanes taxied across. So, after everybody had gone home, uh, except the people who were working there, like us. Uh, I got in it and I taxied it round the perimeter track, and I think it was runway 2-4 at La Bourgeois, and the perimeter track goes round the end. There's a bit of a bump in it. And as I taxied over that, the starboard undercarriage legs sheared off, and the aeroplane fell right over onto the starboard wingtip, broke, you know, did a lot, did, didn't do an enormous amount of damage, but it did uh, sufficient damage to put the whole aeroplane out of action. And uh, that was pretty horrific, uh, a bit of a disaster. And uh, lots of people came to help. And in the end, I had to take the aeroplane to bits and uh, bring it back on a low loader. And I remember this chap in the crowd saying, it will never fly again, which I thought was a very extraordinary thing to say. And I wish I could find him to ask him why on earth he would say that. But those bees saved my life. Well, they saved the aeroplane. If it hadn't happened... 
If they hadn't, hadn't stopped me from flying, it, would, it might have happened on takeoff. It would most certainly have happened on landing, obviously. Um, and I just splattered the airplane all over the runway, and it was in front of everybody. It would have been terrible. And the thing that had gone wrong, remember when I showed you the undercarriage being welded up, and I said, remember this angle, um, uh, joint? it was here. That actually hadn't been made to the drawing. There was supposed to be a disc in there, but the chap had only put a strip, and it was, you could see it, the weld had failed all the way around, um, and, uh, it was a failure there. Um, it was obviously progressive, it was, it had gone half rusty, so it was obviously something that had been progressively, um, coming on. So, you know, I've always had a very soft spot for bees ever since then. May I have the next slide, please? This is just part of the development. Um, you know, to improve the, uh, the thing about, I haven't really talked very much about the controls, but the thing about the rudder was it is extremely powerful, but had no feel in it at all, so I put some springs into the circuit and a bit of horn balance on the top and the bottom, and that's where, which you can see here, that's a bit of doped thing, adding horn balance to it. And uh, this is a, 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 a fixed-pitch wooden propeller. Uh, next slide, please. And this is with a... We put a bigger engine in it, like homing 160 horsepower engine and a Hoffman propeller. Uh, and the, all this took place uh, around the time of, uh, of just just before going to Paris, actually. Next slide, please. I mentioned earlier about layering the the um, pack to act as a scoop. Imagine a trough underneath here, so that it could scoop stuff up into here. Or you just remove the pack and, you know, fill it with something else. Um, next slide, please. Instead of the pack, one could have, you know, a fuselage with uh, side-opening doors in which you could put all the, all the uh, whatever it is you wanted to put. Uh, and this, as the accent has gone off crop spraying and very much onto general utility, uh, the design then evolved really into being one that very positively had to be a front section, a rear section, and a center section. And the center section could be anything you like. You could either have doors like this, you could have the movable pack, uh, and similarly the front section could have be single-seater or two-seater or three-seater if you put a helicopter-type bubble on it. Um, and... Uh, that is the way the, uh, the project was progressing. Uh, uh, may I have the next slide, please? One of, this is the only shot I've got. You see that square hole, there's a camera. There's a bloke inside and he took some photographs, I mean taking photographs of the ground for some survey thing. So that was the aircraft actually being employed for, um, you know, being employed actually. I mean, as opposed to its primary role of development and demonstration. I think this is a good time to say that what was right with the aeroplane, from a handling point of view, was that the control power was, was very good. In fact, I thought I needed to have all that trailing edge business elevator, but I had more than enough elevator power. Uh, what was bad was the... Uh, uh, and it was very maneuverable because controls were very powerful. What was bad was it was very difficult to coordinate turn entry because um, it had low directional stability at low speed. It was all right at high speed. But you had to really 
uh, you know, be light with your, quick with your feet. But I mean, that was a function of not having any aileron differential, and that would would be brought into the thing uh, um, as part of the refinement. And that is actually what would have been the case of what was introduced on this drawing. This is a three-view GA of the airplane in its final, what I thought or hoped would be its final stage of development before being, you know, to a production standard. Um, what, uh, what is different about this, uh, this one? It's still the same LDA01. Uh, we put a, a smoother canopy on it to, um, reduce the drag because it's a very draggy canopy. We put si fins and rudders on the wingtips as, as was uh, worked out and just, you know, by the wind tunnel uh, investigation and so forth. And uh, because I had more than enough elevator power, it did away with that mixing box and just introduced normal controls. In other words, ailerons, port and starboard, flaps, port and starboard, uh, star uh, sorry, um, ailerons, port and starboard, ele elevators, uh, port and starboard, and four plane flap, trim, port and starboard. So um, just pitch trim, Pitch control, roll control. Now, the great advantage of that was that when you came to stall the airplane, uh, and this worked well, the first indication the pilot gets is, is you know, the stick starts to shake a bit or something, and then eventually the nose drops, which is what happened. But as soon as the nose drops, it immediately starts reflying because the main plane hasn't stalled. And, um, if you, if you did what you would instinctively do as a pilot, when you, when you feel the airplane stalling and the, and the nose drops, and you, you push the stick forward, and, and uh, recovery is immediate. If, however, as some pilots might think, you're very close to the ground, be absolutely terrified and hold the stick hard back, it wouldn't matter. And this is the whole point. Uh, because, uh, all that would happen is the airplane, you know, you've got the stick hard back, so you've got the, 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 row, the pitch control on the main plane, which has not stalled, um, trying to make the aeroplane pitch up, and as soon as the foreplane stalled, it would, it, the nose would drop, and then it would, it would uh, unstall itself. So you could, uh, if you took power off and carried out that maneuver, stalled the aeroplane, took the power off, kept the power off, kept the stick in your stomach, it would just go downhill, nodding. And if you put power on, it would either maintain a little flight or climb, nodding. So it demonstrated, I mean, exactly what I'd hoped it would, that it would have uh, extremely safe, low-speed handling. And the, the real three major features of the whole project, really, is that the aeroplane is safe, safer, and it is more simple, and it's more versatile than... Uh, any other aeroplane uh, in its category. Uh, so this actually was built, but not flown. So I cannot say that these in these modifications, which were introduced, designed, and built, but not fitted, um, because it hasn't been flown. So I, you know, it's one of the tragedies of the situation. I can't put my hand on my heart and say it was fully developed to a production configuration. I believe that it would be, but. You know, it's not the same thing as actually having proved it. May I have the next slide, please? This is that airplane of which you've just seen the GA 
made, as I say, all the parts, uh, wing tip fins and others. Um, and uh, next slide, please. And this is it, uh, for transport. Uh, you see in a picture of earlier of the, of the wing underneath the fuselage that uh, I, I made a sort of luggage rack, which was some square tubes across the top of the fuselage and underneath, and then some uh, rods which went up and down. So you had a complete, sort of, a complete luggage rack, like a car. Really. So you could put the wings on the side, you put the uh, third, third wing in, uh, underneath, and you could uh, put everything else inside, and you could taxi the aeroplane like that. And as they had this problem in France, you know, following the B incidents, uh, that undercarriage obviously had to be thrown away. So this undercarriage is off a Cessna 150, which I got from the air accident the investigation people at Farnborough, who uh, some Cessna 150 had gone into the Solent some time ago, and they dragged the remains out. But of course, it's just steel, so they were perfectly strong. So um, it was, uh, it was. Uh, that's a Cessna 150 undercarriage. And actually, this, this undercarriage, the nose leg, wore, here was, and always was, uh, from the word go, off a Piper Tripacer. I mean, I thought that, rather like Colin Chapman with his motor cars, you know, if you can use somebody else's headlamps and somebody else's door handles and all the rest of it, it's a much better way of doing it than redesigning all those things yourself. So I tried to use as many existing parts from other aircraft as I could, um, and that's, apart from instruments and tires, actually, it's a bit difficult to think of any except for the undercarriage, which do come from other aircraft. Now, have the next, please. Incidentally, if anybody wants to ask a question at any time, do feel free to do so. I mean, I'll certainly take any questions at the end, but if in the process, uh, <coughs> um, please do. Now, this is a three-view GA of the basic final production aeroplane, you know, the LDA-1, or the Boxer, as I imagined it would be going into to be a production aeroplane. <coughs> you can see from here that the, the foreplane is held on by four center wing bolts. Those four center wing bolts take, uh, in the, originally had the fin and, fin and rudder in it, and the lift strut and the picketing point. In this case, it would be the lift strut, picketing point, and pylon positions. Um, so that is really the basic aeroplane, and that's, that's a model of it down here, which I've brought along, uh, of this in its basic form. It could also, of course, be fitted with floats. May I have the next slide, please? Uh, and this is a picture of the, the drawing of a tree gel, of it just fitted with floats <coughs> to show how they would be attached. And if you ever wanted to go to the old uh, four-wheeled undercarriage arrangement, that facility would be in there, and of course you'd use that to attach floats. And then there's another version, which... Uh, may I have the next slide, please? <coughs> this may be a bit difficult, but I was... Um, I, I don't know if anybody who have ever been for a ride in a, in a sort of sightseeing tour aeroplane, like a Cessna 180 or 185 or whatever, but I did in... Uh, South Island, New Zealand, um, ski equipped, uh, a beautiful scenery. And so I paid my money and off we went. <coughs> and actually, it's very nice because, <coughs> you know, the scenery is beautiful, but all you can see, really, if you look across the cabin, of course, you can't see very much. 
<coughs> you can see the back of the Havel Blake in front of you, and you can see a win and you can see a fair amount out of the window until the airplane starts to turn, and then all you see is a row of rivets. And I thought there's got to be a better way of doing it than this. And so <coughs> then I thought, well, we could apply it to, to this, to my to the boxer. The center section, as I say, it's modular construction. So you could do what you like. You have any center section you like, seat in your this center section is that with seats facing up, rather like you sit in an underground train. You know, you're sitting at 90 degrees to the direction of travel. So everybody would be sitting in here looking out, looking out that way. So there's nothing to obstruct anybody's view um, <coughs> as you fly around, you know, mountains or whatever it is you're looking at. Um, and I thought that that would be a really good thing to have for uh, tourism, for sightseeing. And the nose section, you know, it could either be a standard one, or you could put a helicopter type of three seats uh, thing on it, because the CG range would take it. There's absolutely no problem with the CG. Um, and uh, if you said, well, I don't want... I, tourism, tourism is only half the season. I want to do... I want to take things to market and granite hospital uh, and that kind of thing at other times, then you simply change the center fuselage section and you put in the standard one with doors in it, like the model. Um, <clears throat> so that was, I don't know what you'd call these different things, but I'd call this perhaps the boxer scenic. But uh, I think it would be a very good thing for tourism. Now have the next slide, please. This shows the different roles of, uh, of the different versions. On the left, the removable container uh, for carrying. You can have pre-packed supplies, obviously, and you can just leave them. And when the airplane lands, you can take off and load it up, drop it by parachute. Aerial photography, put in it. You put a small car in it, uh, and it could be used also for crop spraying. Um, the side-loading door version, which I think would be, and particularly nowadays, would be infinitely more you know, likely to be usable. Six uh, passengers, air ambulance, freight carriage, and then the military rail. The idea was you have a um, you have a, uh, a weapons operator, um, gunner, sitting on a thing rather like an extended bar stool. He'd be looking out of the top through a cupola, and he'd be sitting on a stool to which was attached underneath um, anti-tank anti rockets or whatever. Uh, uh, weapon that was currently currently uh, you know, wanted to be employed, um, and the anti-tank would be an obvious one. He can rotate around, and as he turns, the whole, all the rockets turn with him. So they're always get pointing where he is looking, uh, and I think we call that the boxer trooper or something like that. So that would be the light defence aircraft. Um, uh, version of the aircraft. And then this is a similar, this standard fuselage uh, uh, center section, but it could have a, a, an additional load underneath for sprock, uh, crop spraying and pest control and that sort of thing. Um, the rockets, um, uh, the anti-tank rockets would be underneath there, and uh, you know they just swing around when he swung around. So the pilot could be taking evasive action, 
while the gunner was concentrating on the target. So you wouldn't have to be attacking a target that you were dependent upon the pilot sort of looking at and pointing his aeroplane at. The pilot could be flying away from it. He could be flying sideways to the target. Well, this guy could still shoot at it. Um, next slide, please. I haven't done much about, added much about performance here. This is based on the original design, which had a Lycoming IO540 290 horsepower engine. And with that engine, it had a max weight of 4,000 pounds, uh, operating weight empty of 215, um, disposable load, which is, you know, near 2,000 pounds virtually, um, and, uh, the cargo capacity of 250 cubic feet, because it's just a big box. The cruising speed of 125 knots, actually 126, I think it was worked out. If you made an equivalent aeroplane in terms of payload, but you made it more sleek and more elegant aerodynamically, it would, it would cruise at 132 knots. So that the penalty paid for having all the features that this aircraft has, um, the penalty in cruise speed would be uh, the difference between 126 and 132 knots. Then, but, uh, that was a 290 horsepower engine. I'm a great believer in thinking that you should not, I mean, a thing to go for is uh, a wing loading of 15 pounds a square foot, a power loading of 10, and uh, uh, 10 pounds per square foot. 15 pounds per square foot wing loading and 10 pounds per horsepower. And with a IO 720 engine, say, of uh, 400 uh, horsepower, your that weight is 4,000 pounds, uh, you've got it. Um, if it is a, um, a piston engine of that size of weight, the engine would have to be mounted in front of the main plane with a short drive shaft to the propeller. If it was a turbine engine, and it would take something like a Boeing, uh, what is it, a uh, BC-17, uh, uh, if it was a small turbine engine, you could put it right in the tail. But if it was a piston engine, which is heavy, you would have to have, uh, it would have to be mounted just in front, just in front of the leading edge of the wing, with a prop shaft of the length of the wing cord, um, which would be quite a simple thing, I think, to introduce. And what you could also play with that is that you would have a bearing then just at the back of the fuselage, just before the propeller, which you could manipulate so you could actually angle the thrust quite easily. You wouldn't have to touch the engine. You'd only have to move the, the bearing that was holding the prop shaft at the end by the propeller. So that would be something to play with. Um, next slide, please. Well, these, these are just shots of the aeroplane as it was, uh, 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 as it was, as I, you know, intended it, the full-sized aircraft to be. The engine is here. The prop shaft would be there. So you could fiddle about with that and make an angle this. And, uh, I hadn't, you know, it's just that it would be an interesting thing to experiment with. We have the next slide, please. Um, I, I think this is all quite a, The landing lights are in the wingtips of the foreplane. Um, the uh, entry to the cockpit is uh, from this side. The idea here was to have the pilot sitting um, on the left-hand side, which is conventional, and the you know his help operator crew member would be in a seat slightly aft, um, and then he could have a little table behind so he could do whatever he had to do um, and still have somewhere to work. But you could put any cockpit on it you like. As I say, the CG range is so great that 
with regard to the LDO-1. I loaded it to aft of the aft CG, uh, so that actually the nose wheel was off the ground, and not until I sat in the cockpits did it come back onto the ground. And the stalling characteristics, both you know, level flight and dynamically, were just as good. Um, it really did. It, it really did have uh, extremely safe uh, low speed and stalling characteristics. The, the fins are angled because these are interchangeable. Everything's interchangeable, uh, and so the, the the wing tip glove, which would be metal, uh, would take slotted into it the top and the bottom fins, which would be interchangeable, and they're angled to reduce the interference drag, you know, between the wing and the fin. So that saved a lot of induced drag and actually uh, made the airplane a better a better bet. Thank you very thank much you. indeed, and thank you again. <laughs>
seems to offer such terrific advantages that it's, in retrospect, surprising that your arsonist disaster hasn't led, didn't give rise to an opportunity for rivals or copycats. Yes, I don't think the arsonist had anything to do with the, that sort of thing. Given the fact it happened, mm. uh, you, I say, you seem to have demonstrated in, in spades the practicality of the arrangement and in that sense, I'm surprised that no one's followed you. Yes, well, I think, uh, in a way, I suppose I am. I, I think the thing is that most people, you know, aircraft manufacturers, design teams and so forth, have got their own ideas. Of their, nobody really wants to take on, very seldom do you get a case where somebody goes to a manufacturer and says, I've got an idea for an aeroplane, and they take it on. Usually they say, thanks very much. Uh, but we've got our own design team. So I think um, that uh, there is that. You also pay a price because in order to get the handling characteristics and the things which this aeroplane has, you don't, you cannot extract from the main wing at the back as much as you could do in terms of lift if you had the, uh, the conventional uh, arrangement with download on the tailplane. I mean, you, you, um, I mean, the advantage of this is smaller because you've got lift coming from both front and, and the back, but it is a compromise. And so the, there are people who uh, are very pro this sort of thing, like Bert Rutan built plenty of canards, but uh, there are plenty of people who don't like canard uh, tandem wing arrangements. Um, so... I think there would be a big debate going on in the aerodynamics department as to whether it was a good idea um, and so forth. But uh, for the role which it is designed for, which is uh, you know, to be a very simple and safe aeroplane and to be built by um, embryonic aircraft industries in countries overseas where they've got a use for the aeroplane, I think that uh, it would be the right configuration. I don't feel every aeroplane ought to be like this at all. In fact, I'm working on a design at the moment which doesn't look anything like this. But um, uh, that's a different thing. Uh, I, do, I just feel it's the right configuration for this role. But, uh, As a supplementary. Sorry? As a supplementary question, does the Cessna Caravan come closest to achieving what you set out to achieve in the... It's a bit bigger because it's got a PT-6, isn't it? Uh, uh, it's a bit bigger, but uh, I would say it was more directly comparable to a, maybe a Cessna 185 or 205. But uh, it's, it's in that sort of area, yeah, but the, the caravan is a bigger, a bigger airplane with much more power. Yeah. Um, can you say something about the, the Miles uh, Technical School at Woodley? I've always been very intrigued as to why it was... Uh, Mars seemed to uh, accumulate a number of captured German aeroplanes uh, just after the war. They had a via glider, didn't they? Yes. Um, other, what other? I can't remember what other. Well, I think they had Narado 96, and of course the old Air Britain Junkers 52. That was their clubhouse. Actually, I went there in 1948 yeah. to discover the whole place had been shut down, and the uh, I think. Um, there were various fuselages in the factory covered in dust sheets, and uh, that was it. 
But I, it just intrigued me as to, uh, you know, I hadn't heard of a, a Mars technical school and I exactly wondered how many people were in it, what the, the, you know, the subjects taught and, and so on. Oh, well, the subjects that were taught, well, I mean, if you really want to know the details, I can, there's a, there is a, someone who runs the uh, Matt's and uh, Miles Emerald technical sort of old, old scholars uh, thing. So if you're really interested, I can give you the, the name and address of this person who can put you in touch with her story. But in broad terms, I mean, the, you know, aircraft design and construction was taught. We were taught, you know, drawing and machining in the workshop and built, we were building a wooden aeroplane called Dumbo, a twin-engined aeroplane. Um, so it was aerodynamic structures, um, every aspect of it. They were very, um, I, I'm full of admiration. I, I, I thought the Miles family were terrific. Um, uh, uh, they're very innovative. I mean, the nearest thing to the Miles family today is Bert Rutan. You know, every Thursday afternoon they come out with a new prototype. It might be bits sawn off one aeroplane and glued onto another, but I mean, they were having a go at all sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and they were, yeah, they, they were full of good ideas, I thought. I mean, not all their ideas were good, but I mean, they, they had a go at everything, yeah. and, uh. My name's Peter Waller. Um, I was interested in the use of the airfoils on the rear wing for elevator and aileron. Did you manage to maintain the full aileron authority irrespective of the pitch input? I ask this because a few years ago I used to do a lot of flying in a Fiesler stalk. Oh, yes. And that had the flaps interconnected with the ailerons. Yeah. And you maintained full aileron authority more or less independently of flap position. And they also managed to make the geometry such that you had differential aileron as well. You heard what, sorry? Differential aileron Did was, yes. was yeah. achieved <coughs> yeah. um, on top of the drooping of the ailerons with flap. Yeah. But which did, seemed to be the same basic problem that you have. Yes. Did they have... I mean, the, the flaps didn't have differential as well, or did they? No, no, no. It was, yeah. it was the ailerons maintained the dif differential action yeah. irrespective of the flap, which really moved the datum of yeah. the ailerons. Well, they've probably got a more, probably got a better system. I mean, my, the answer to your question is no. If you, ha if you put, move the stick diagonally across the cockpit, you, uh, you use, you know, you've got enough aeroplane, enough aileron and enough elevator, but, uh, they weren't as much, I, I can't remember the exact figures. No, there, there was a certain loss in, uh, in movement if you move the stick diagonally across the cockpit, but not one that was ever the controls were incredibly powerful, mm. and so you know you never needed full aileron. So it wasn't actually a question which arose and thought, I "Have to do something about this," because it didn't arise as a problem. And then, of course, as there was so much elevator power anyhow, and the whole system was scrapped um, and taken out of the airplane and just aileron and, uh, elevator in the wrong way, it, the question then didn't arise because you could easily put aileron differential into that. Could I ask, David, uh -huh. did you certificate it under permit to fly? Yes. Um, was that through the PFA? It was, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you found John Posigal. Yes, yes. John Walker and yes. John. Yeah. You dealt with him as well, I expect. As well as, yeah. Could I ask whether the uh, replaceable middle 
uh, Pang units Pang. Uh, were part of the load-bearing path through the aircraft, or were they a plug-in to a load-bearing independent structure? Yeah, no, the structure, they were quite independent. They were not load-bearing, and the airplane could fly without it. It was not... Uh, and of course, the bending moment on the fuselage sort of goes like that. So the bending moment was quite low in the middle of the fuselage. Thank you, Frank Armstrong. Um, uh, looking at the aircraft as it stands now, the concept is still entirely valid, I would have thought. Oh. Um, and you yourself have uh, indicated that you still essentially believe in it as a as a concept. And uh, I think it's a uh, a great example of, of Rutan-type thinking, it seems to me, you know, mm. where somebody uh, designs a, a flying machine to suit certain purposes from scratch without a preconceived um, tendency to make it one shape or another. Um, and it makes me wonder whether there is still some potential for the use of it. Um, we've... Uh, uh, we often have uh, uh, discussions in the news media about the, the need for rapid reaction to disasters and all sorts of uh, problems around the world. Um, and one hears of various uh, aircraft concepts of one kind and another that might be helpful. And of course there is, there is the economic issue, but you have certainly come up with a machine which appears to offer the potential of very low production cost and great versatility. And, of course, as a concept, it's scalable. You could make different sizes of these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wondered whether there was any possibility of interesting some uh, um, development agency or UN agency or something of that sort, some sort of uh, perhaps international body which is trying to devise systems that would be of, of use in uh, uh, welfare and disaster relief and uh, general utility. In other words, really, uh, I'm suggesting uh, one shouldn't give up. One shouldn't give up hope for a thing like this. So do, you, do you feel that there's any, any scope for that? Sorry for the long speech. No, not at all. Well, thank you very much. No, I mean, I agree, absolutely. I mean, it's not out of date. <clears throat> I mean, it's a truck. You know, people make trucks, new trucks every year. So, um, and it's still, all, this, all the features of it are, are absolutely valid. And certainly, distressed area relief was very much one of its uh, intended roles. I mean, I, I really hoped it was going to be a benefit to mankind rather than blowing it up sort of thing. But... Uh, and I, you could get three of those uh, into a C-130, for example, uh, take the wings off, as you saw in the picture. So, and I always felt on the distressed aerial front, why doesn't you know the United Nations or whoever say to the military, you know, pick centres around the world <coughs> and introduce the military into it? Because they've got the infrastructure, they've got the transport aircraft, they can defend the. Uh, the, the routes that they're trying to get food or medicines to. Um, so I would have thought it was the obvious thing to do instead of 
wondering who's going to look after things. If that was so, if there was a disaster in South America or Bangladesh or wherever it was, the nearest center with the C-130s or whatever they were, uh, could rush in and cope with it. And those things, of course, could operate locally if they were brought into it. Uh, well, they could fly out because the ferry range, if you put fuel in the cargo area, is 3,000 miles. I think you would probably have rather a sore bottom and not want to stick that out. But, uh, I mean, in fact, you could, but I mean, practically, it wouldn't be a really, really good idea. But yes, I think that um, it is very much an aeroplane which... Uh, I mean, I have, uh, as regards these agencies you mentioned, I have tried over the years, um, and I've produced, you know, business plans and kept up to date with who, where, how, how much, uh, everything. And I've got f several brochures on it, which I've kept in, up in, in tandem with the developing of the aeroplane, you know, development of the business approach. And I have got absolutely nowhere, and I've tried... Uh, I can't think of a country which is likely to use it that I haven't tried. I've tried all the things that used to exist in this country, like TDC and ICFC and so forth. They were very helpful, encouraging. And then when I, they said, what you've got to do is present a business plan, you've got to build an aeroplane, you've got to show that it works. And when I did all that, showed them films and all that, sort they said, no. And I said, okay, why not? I mean, you've been very encouraging to date. Uh, you've told me that I should produce a business plan. I've done that. you told me I should build an aeroplane. I've done that. Um, What's wrong? We don't like aeroplanes. You know, that was the one answer I got from one of these government or Quango type things. I, I mean, it's something which they could have said in the first instance. But I found, I mean, they had lovely offices, you know, the nicest furniture and the thickest carpets. <coughs> what Bob Hope would describe as feeling airsick on the carpets as a water. <coughs> I mean, um, I just found them I tried and tried and tried, believe me. And uh, th th nobody came up and said, the reason we don't like it is because we don't believe your production costs or things, or uh, we don't believe the marketing is right, or we don't think the aeroplane flies properly. Nobody ever said that. They just said no. Oh, yes. <coughs> I, I've known Bert for a long time. In fact, I, flew, I quite often I bump into him now and again. Uh, and he's done marvelously, hasn't he? Um, actually, I flew that. I, I, we were talking about it uh, not so long ago, uh, before he flew his very Vigan, which was the first aeroplane that he made. Um, but, I mean, he's now almost moved out of aeroplanes and into space, isn't he? No, he's done fantastically well. But uh, he's always built research aeroplanes, which is, uh, which is all, where all the fun is. Uh, in fact, he says that's what goes on in Mojave. It's the F word. Fun. That's what we have. And he, he's, I was talking to him you know, a while back, and he said, you know, I've never actually ever certificated an airplane because he doesn't put anything into production. Um, he, but he's, you know, someone comes along and says, build me an airplane to win the Reno air races, he'll do it. I mean, he's, he and his team, he's got a very good team of chaps there. Uh, and I envy them. They must have a wonderful time. Hello, Philip Ransom. Um, many years ago, I suppose it must have been in the in the early 70s, a model of the LDA aircraft, an air, a wind tunnel model, appeared at uh, Kingston Polytechnic. Yes. Um, 
I imagine a project student used it for some work, but I'm not sure whether any data was uh, of any value to, to your work. Um, the model stayed there for many, many years afterwards, and uh, we used it to explain to our design students the, the uh, way unusual concepts could be exploited, and, and also particularly the idea of uh, simplicity, uh, interchangeable parts, minimum number of parts, and cutting production costs. This sort of thing uh, you know, is very valuable to give to students in their uh, formative years. Mm. Um, as I say, the model stayed there for many years afterward, but uh, about 12 years ago we moved the uh, laboratory to another building, and I'm not sure whether the model actually survived the, the move. You know what it is when things get moved out of a building. Uh, uh, things get lost or put into a skip, unfortunately. But uh, it was a very interesting model, perhaps one of the most interesting models we, we had uh, in the laboratory. Coming back to the previous question, I must say that I sympathise with you greatly because I got uh, involved on the periphery of another project for a firefighting aircraft and uh, we put together all sorts of plans um, with various people with an aeroplane using interchangeable parts from other models, building it up like a Meccano set, put in several applications for funding for development work from the European Union and other sources and yeah they said do it and then in the end they said well you don't get many forest fires in the UK do you so we're not going to support it uh, anyway um, thank you for your uh, uh, presentation I enjoyed it a great deal yeah, but I, I remember that model it was silver wasn't it and uh, it was John Stollery who I think uh, was he there when you were there um, he went on to Cranfield, uh, I think he, he was at, he was at Imperial College at one stage. Because I think, I thought it was, I remember it a long time ago now, but I thought he was the chap who agreed to get the students to have a go at doing some testing on it. But, you know. Just mentioning the model, I have a feeling that there's a model that's around about, uh, 18 inches span in the Science Museum store. But I think that's painted in the white and blue livery. But I've got a feeling that at Blythe House there may be a model um, it's five years or something since I've seen it, but I have a feeling that there is. Um, but uh, I'll try and check next time I go, and if I do, I'll try and let you know. Um, no, my point was, was picking up on this utility and the industry's aversion to sponsoring budget projects. And I think we've seen this over a number of years. I mean, the RAF at one point turned down the Islander potentially because it had a fixed undercarriage and looked old-fashioned. Um, and didn't want to replace the Pembroke with something that potentially looked almost as ancient. Um, the caravan has been um, seen as too luxurious for most developing nations, um, and in response, Gippsland have produced the airvan, which is not quite as big, but is very much a third-world-type production. And I gather there's a... Is it a Kodiak? There's a firm in uh, Alaska who are building, again, a budget caravan. Mm. Um, but there does seem to be an aversion. To, as soon as somebody tries to do something as a budget project, investors don't see the multiplication factor, the markups, and, and all the prestige that goes with something that is state-of-the-art. If you wanted it uh, fiberglass or titanium, then it's much more likely to tick the right boxes. Um, but I think it, it shows that I mean, the Skyvan, to some extent, picked up some of the market, but the island is really the only utility 
aeroplane that's sold worldwide in quantities of four to six and things, mm. um, pulling together all the African nations and getting them all to reliably and without corruption sign up for six of each. You know, um, yeah. I think it just means people like the UN say, oh, you know, the, the negotiations will just be enormous and we'll end up with 500 of these in packing cases that can't be delivered and we can't train the people to put them together. And, and I think that's probably what kills the budget aeroplane. And perhaps it's a tribute to Britain Norman that they're the only people who really cracked um, that area um, where they weren't looking for orders for 500 or anything. And in fact, when they did approach the big boys like the RAF, um, it was... 20 years before the RAF saw how useful it was. Mm. But, uh, and they managed that without a big access door, whereas uh, at least Skyvan did have a sort of drive-up, twin-tail approach. And as Beach found out, with their um, skyship, a starship, um, eventually it was just a bit too different. Oh, but that was a very different aeroplane. Yeah. But, but it, again, an unusual configuration. Yeah, but um, I mean, the manufacturing cost and then the management made the fuselage. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't a budget aeroplane, yeah, but again, yeah. it was... Just that bit nervous to go somewhere, which mm. was unusual, and mm. arguably Boeing with the, wing bo the blended wing body also. Mm. Um, there were enough people thinking, do we really want to get something that different? Um, and it's time, really, that people should uh, trust in the expertise of the designers like yourself um, and take a risk. Yes. But I don't, yes, I don't think anybody has produced an aeroplane with the degree of interchangeability or the simplicity. <coughs> but, of course... Also, one's got to be careful when you're selling to some parts of the world because they, they might feel they were being patronized if you said, we've got a very simple aeroplane just right for you. That's the last thing they want to hear. They'd like to make something that makes a supersonic bang on President's Day or something. So it really has to be presented as a, the latest state of the art um, rather than the simplest thing in the world. I think uh, in my experience of having attempted to launch some aircraft in the so-called third world. Twenty years ago, there were some possibilities of this. The third world remains the third world because the only reason for existence is to take money or make an enormous amount of money out of anything, offer them a cheap airplane, and they're going to say, where's the two million dollars needed? for my pension fund in Switzerland. I think uh, this, this is impossible now. Just as a question, your flying control system, is that ex was that basically the same as the MILE system on their two airplanes? No, I don't think it was. I think they had their elevator on the foreplane, <clears throat> like Bert Rutten's airplanes. Yeah. I think that's uh, not... And I had a lot of argument with about him uh, years and years ago when he was building the Wigan. And, uh, uh, and he's very adamant that uh, the elevator should be on the foreplane. But the whole point about uh, and, and, the, and the means of achieving such a safe, uh, low-speed uh, handling and stalling characteristic is because the control surface—you <coughs> know—it hasn't the, the, the foreplane. Four-plane is stalled, but the surface which carries the primary pitch control has not stalled, so it is inherently safer. I see. <clears throat> you probably have uh, come across a mouse pattern somewhere if you had done, in fact. I, I, I don't think 
I'm pretty sure both Little Lula designs, the M35 and the 39B, I think they both had their elevator on the foreplane. Yes. Um, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the natural thing to think when you see uh, a tail-first aeroplane. You think, oh, well, that's where the elevator is. And uh, I don't know of another tandem wing or canard configuration that has this control system. Probably coming yep. to the end. Absolutely. Yep. David, could I thank you very, very much for coming and telling us about your project? To me, it's been absolutely fascinating to see what can be done by a small group of enthusiasts and individuals without big government money, not quite in the uh, living room, on the living room table, but at least in a Nissan hut. Mm. Um, it's been a, a wonderful story that you've told remarkably well. The sad thing is it hasn't gone to production, and that's really emphasized to all of us that, in a way, getting a prototype flying is the easy bit, and getting some, the big money and the production going is the difficult one, and you've been caught in that, as have others, Thank you so much for telling us about it, and it's been a real privilege to hear from you. Thank, thank you very thank much you. indeed, and thank you again for coming.